Welcome to Blackbird episode number 88. My name is James, and tonight I am pleased to bring to you my interview with Daniel McCarthy. Daniel is, of course, the editor of Modern Age and a professor with Renegade University. Among many, many other things, you know him from the Tom Woods podcast, if you know him from nowhere else. And with that, here is my interview with Daniel McCarthy. Oh, Daniel, welcome to the show. I just almost called you Daniel McAdams. I hope you don't get that as often as I mistakenly try to do that? That's okay. You know, uh, Dan McAdams is a uh, friend of mine. I've known him since he worked for Ron Paul, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. But no, I am Dan McCarthy. I am, uh, as you mentioned, the editor of Modern Age, and I'm very pleased to join you today, James. Awesome. Well, so you mentioned that you've known Daniel McAdams a while and from his Ron Paul days. Can you kind of give a, a bio of sort of where you came from and what brought you where you are now? Yeah, you know, I uh, first got interested in politics and political ideas about uh, 25 years ago, around the time I was a freshman in high school. And uh, that was uh, the early to mid-1990s. It was the uh, sort of high tide of the Pat Buchanan movement. So in 1992, Pat Buchanan runs for president uh, you know, in the Republican primaries. In 1996, he runs again. And I'm sort of coming of age politically uh, in the midst of that. So I was someone who uh, you know, was very much... Um, sort of energized by Pat Buchanan's approach to politics, by the kind of fundamental look he took at foreign policy, at immigration, at trade, and everything else. And uh, so I became a, you know, sort of young Buchananite uh, in the early 90s. 96, I graduate from high school. I go to college at Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, that's sort of uh, where I'm coming from politically at that point. Then I sort of, over the course of my undergraduate years, I start learning more about paleoconservatism, the variety of conservatism that Buchanan is usually associated with. And I start reading a magazine called Chronicles, which today is edited by Paul Gofried. And uh, Chronicles really sort of deepened my knowledge of the uh, you know, sort of elements of conservatism that Pat Buchanan was often drawing upon. And Chronicles magazine and some of its uh, larger community led me to uh, a number of websites. This was the early, day, uh, early days of the internet. And things like antiwar.com and lewrockwell.com were quite new, but I discovered them fairly early on in their uh, history. And uh, so I was reading people like Justin Raimondo, I was reading people like Tom Woods, and, uh, and I started writing for uh, some of these websites as well. And I started a, a campus conservative publication at Washington University, and that was kind of my launch into being someone who you know, was a writer, an editor, and uh, you know, when I graduated from Washington University, I pretty soon went on and became a staff writer and then an editor at the American Conservative Magazine. And uh, that was a role that uh, I was in in various capacities as a books editor for a while and eventually as the editor-in-chief. I left the, the American Conservative for a short time and became uh, a, uh, actually went to work for the Ron Paul campaign back in 2008 when he was running for president the first time. I was the official campaign blogger. And uh, then I came back to the American Conservative, became the full editor there, the editor-in-chief of the publication. And I was there through 2016, at which point uh, I left and I started writing more often as a freelancer. I became the editor of Modern Age in 2017. And uh, I've done a number of other things as well, working for the Fund for American Studies and the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. This kind of gives you the overview of uh, sort of both my career and also perhaps my uh, intellectual development. Yeah. So if someone asked you what you do for a living, would you would you say you're a writer? Is that? Yeah, I think that's uh, how I would generally publicly introduce myself, unless I'm cool. 
explicitly talking to uh, college students who are interacting with me in my capacity as a vice president at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. You know, in most other contexts, I would refer to myself as being a journalist, uh, the editor of Modern Age, and uh, you know, a columnist for the Spectator magazine, and a num- number of other things like that. How would you describe ISI and Modern Age? Yeah, you know, uh, these are two of the oldest pillars of the conservative movement, and uh, I should pause and say they are pillars of the conservative movement that I think have conducted themselves over the decades with a great deal more integrity than most other conservative institutions. And I say that not just because I work there, but rather it's the other way around. I work there because these are institutions uh, that I've admired and I admired even before I went to work for them. Mm. So ISI was founded in 1953. It was originally the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists. And uh, the idea to begin it came from uh, Frank Chodorov. Chodorov was um, kind of an early anarcho-capitalist in some respects. Uh, He was a follower of an economist by the name of Henry George. And uh, Frank Chodorov was just a remarkable sort of um, prefiguration. He was almost like the John the Baptist to, you know, Murray Rothbard, uh, you know, as kind of founder of the libertarian church, uh, as it may be. And so Chodorov, you know, interestingly enough, had this idea to start an organization that would counteract the influence of socialism on campuses. And uh, Chodorov didn't really want to start the organization himself. He just wrote a column for uh, Human Events, uh, which was one of the main conservative publications at that time. He wrote a column about it, and uh, people started just sending him checks in the mail. He was absolutely astonished at the response to this column that he put out there just kind of workshopping the idea without any real plan to get it started. And because the checks just started coming in, in the mail immediately, he decided, okay, he would actually recruit a few people and get something launched. And uh, one of his first recruits, the person he brought in to be the the president of ISI at the very beginning in 1953, was William F. Buckley Jr. And the young Bill Buckley at that point, you know, he'd published God and Man at Yale about two years earlier, and he was two years away still from founding National Review. So Buckley was a recent uh, graduate of Yale University, and uh, he was someone who was influenced both by his Catholic family background and also by uh, some of the individualist, uh, even anarchist types that uh, he and his father had known, people like Albert J. Nock, for example, uh, the author of a great book called Memoirs of a Superfluous Man. So ISI at the very beginning had this uh, quite strong libertarian element, but it always uh, very rapidly acquired a a traditionalist element as well. And in the early 1950s, even though people sort of mistakenly think of it as an era of conservatism, it was a time when people were really kind of hungry to reconnect with uh, the Western tradition, and with, uh, you know, the idea that there's something other than just a kind of utilitarian approach to politics and to life. And so um, 1953 was also the year that Russell Kirk published a book called The Conservative Mind, which became, um, in some ways, kind of the ur-text of the uh, conservative movement. It was one of the books that helped popularize the term conservative in the United States in the post-war era. And uh, Kirk, at that time, was looking to start a publication, and he eventually succeeded in doing so in 1957. And that publication was Modern Age, which uh, Kirk had always wanted to be uh, a kind of biweekly publication. He always wanted it to be, I think, a kind of rival in some ways to National Review. But the finances just didn't permit him to do that. So instead, uh, Modern Age became a quarterly journal. And uh, it still is a quarterly journal today, still in print. And uh, so I am, you know, in a line of succession of editors stretching back from Russell Kirk in 1957 onto myself, uh, you know, starting in 2017. Great. I like that it's a quarterly journal. It makes it feel a little bit more prestigious. I don't know if that, I don't know if that's intentional or not, but uh, yeah, that's right. It, it, it's something that you know. There are a lot of publications out there that talk about the news of the day and that talk yeah. about you know sort of what's going on in uh, you know partisan politics. 
And the nice thing about modern age is it allows you to have a look at conservatism in a kind of um, a longer view. It, it's able to take you know a more philosophical and literary approach to things as opposed to simply being about immediate controversies or hot takes. What would you say is the difference, if there is one, between conservatism and right-wingism? You know, I mean, there's a lot of ways to approach that question. Um, I think one useful way of looking at it is that the right tends to be whatever the opposite of the left is. And in that sense, it can be a little bit relativistic and drift over time. Of course, conservatism is a label that gets used by various people in rather radically different ways. But conservatism generally, I think, should be rooted in the thought of someone like Edmund Burke, you know, who was um, a statesman in the late 18th century, you know, an Anglo-Irishman, a member of parliament, and uh, the great sort of arch enemy of the French Revolution in the 1790s. Burke is very much a parallel to many of our own founding fathers, especially someone like John Adams. And so I think conservatism as a set of ideas is best rooted in at least uh, the spirit of the kind of uh, thought that you find in John Adams and in Edmund Burke, as opposed to being something that is just reacting to whatever the left might be advancing at a given time. But all of these things, you know, we have almost been in a continual state of revolution since the French Revolutionary era, which was rather different, you know, from our own American Revolution, yeah. because the French Revolution really was pretty comprehensive. It tried to be, you know, a, an overturning of all social relations, a revolution in religion and in, you know, the family, even changing the, the names of uh, dates in the calendar was part of the French Revolution. That's how, you know, sweeping it was in terms of trying to overturn everything. Whereas the American Revolution, even though it had its radical elements, it was not an attempt to kind of uh, take the, the calendar back to year zero and kind of start all of human civilization over again. Do you think we're teetering on the edge of a French Revolution-style thing here in America right now? Well, maybe in a, a slow-motion way. Mm. It seems to me that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, sort of uh, impulse towards upheaval that you see, especially reflected among our elites, uh, among the college-educated, among uh, the uh, sort of barons of the tech companies, and, uh, you know, among politicians. I think ordinary Americans, you know, they would like life to be relatively, you know, not unexciting, but predictable in the sense that they don't want any, you know, major shocks, that they think that, you know, they have a pretty clear idea of what it means to have a good life, and they'd like to have more of it. They'd like to see more prosperity. They'd like to see sort of more happiness, but they don't want to overturn, you know, all the tables and have something, you know, completely redefined, like redefining gender and redefining the family and redefining, you know, you know, the relationship between police and criminals and all these other things. Whereas the, the left right now really does have that view. And the left currently, interestingly enough, occupies all of our elite institutions. Uh, and that's true of the media. It's true of the academy. And it's true of, you know, the federal bureaucracy and otherwise. So it, it's a weird kind of, you know, if it's like the French Revolution, it is in one way the opposite of the French Revolution, too. Because this time, instead of having an aristocracy and a king and an established church that are trying to defend themselves against, you know, a kind of revolutionary middle class, now what you actually have is a radical left-wing elite that's uh, trying to impose itself on the middle class and on everyone, you know, sort of lower down as well. So there's the lower class, working class whites who kind of are in allegiance with, I guess, that larger middle class. But then there's the Black Lives Matter movement, which has been weaponized by, in my opinion, weaponized by the elites to sort of foment this pseudo-revolution, I guess. Do you think that that was intentional? Like, do they know what they're doing? Or did it just so happen that, hey, we're Democrats and you're Democrats too, so we should rely on this? Or where do you think that came from? 
Well, you know, I think it's just the way that our elite has found to keep its death grip on power, right? Mm. So um, trying to make Americans feel guilty about themselves, trying to make them feel as if they have to be, you know, administered by an overclass of uh, progressive elites who are more enlightened than they are. This is how, you know, a ruling class, which otherwise has very little legitimate claim to power, they certainly can't claim power on the basis of competence or on the basis of benevolence, but they can they can claim power on the basis of being holier than thou, on the basis of being, uh, you know, sort of the experts who know how systematic racism has, you know, continued to ruin life for minorities in this country. And uh, they claim that they're the ones who are going to fix this problem. And uh, a lot of Americans who quite rightly are appalled by, you know, the uh, racism that has indeed been a reality in our country, they say, well, you know what, we're going to go ahead and give this elite the kind of power it wants because they're saying the right things. They sound as if they really care and they're compassionate. And then, of course, we actually see the results of Democrats and progressives having power. And what it is, is, you know, you have uh, rampant bloodshed in the cities. And uh, in fact, you know, it's minority populations that are affected the worst by the crime. Nevertheless, it's very interesting, right? So in uh, the last uh, couple of years, you've seen a number of, you know, many times mentally ill criminals, many times, uh, you know, criminals who are just radically antisocial, assaulting people on the New York subway. And in particular, because these criminals are cowards and bullies, they like to pick on people who look more vulnerable. And, uh, you know, Asian women are often much smaller physically than, uh, you know, uh, other parts of the population. And therefore, Asian women in particular get singled out for violence by a lot of these street criminals. And how does this get reported in the media? It's turned into, quote, anti-Asian violence, which is true up to a point. But what it's not pointing out is that uh, this is not a result of, you know, sort of what they call white supremacy and, you know, sort of Donald Trump voters or anything like that. This is actually a result of street criminals who are, you know, going after vulnerable people in the population. And it's not just Asians, of course. They've also gone after uh, the actor Rick Moranis, for example, who famously is a quite short guy. He played uh, Dark Helmet, for example, in Space Walls. Um, he was just, you know, punched out on the street one night, uh, one day by one of these, uh, by, a, by a thug, basically, by a criminal. So, um, you know, even things like street crime are being translated from a basic, raw, painful reality in American cities into this very ideologized and weaponized uh, concept, which is then ultimately going to be turned not against the criminals, but is going to be turned against, you know, ordinary people who vote for the likes of Donald Trump. Huh. I didn't know that about Rick Moranis, actually. He's also on the autism spectrum, which means that he's either libertarian or transgender or both. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but no, I mean, that is too bad. I had no idea that when I hear about anti-Asian crime, that a lot of times it is actually just <laughs> convenient targeting of smaller and weaker people. <laughs> That's awful. Getting into your RU course a little bit, can you kind of give a brief overview or, you know, as long as you need to overview of sort of the major schools of thought in American conservatism? You've talked about the paleocons a little bit, but obviously there are others. Yeah, so I mean, the great enemies of the paleocons are the so-called neoconservatives. And, uh, you know, these are two different uh, Greek prefixes. Paleo means old and neo means new. And um, the neoconservatives, you know, many times started out uh, being on the political left. And uh, prior to the 1970s, many of them were liberal Democrats. Before that, many of them had been fellow travelers of the Trotskyist strain within communism. And uh, it's interesting. I mean, one reason why many of these uh, Trotskyists wound up going to work for the CIA, for example, and going to work for various kinds of government agencies back in the 1950s was 
uh, because they were Trotskyists, they were the people who could be most strongly counted upon to be anti-Stalinist because of this, you know, internal fight within the communist mm -hmm. church between the Stalinists and the Trotskyists. So you knew that if you hired a Trotskyist to be one of your agents, uh, that that person would hate Stalin, even if he didn't love capitalism. And the CIA and other, you know, sort of government uh, institutions were much more concerned about being anti-communist than they were about being pro-capitalist or pro-conservative or pro-American even. So in, in a variety of ways, you had, you know, a number of people who were on the left started moving, uh, you know, into the Republican Party in the 1960s and 1970s, in part in response to the way in which, you know, the so-called new left of the 1960s and 70s responded to things like uh, crime in the streets and uh, to anti-Americanism in foreign policy, that um, a lot of the new left, you know, really turned off these, um, you know, former Trotskyists, these, you know, sort of social Democrats who thought that, you know, the, the left was just going too far you know, in, in terms of uh, uh, sort of cultural radicalism. And so they started moving themselves into the Republican Party and into the conservative movement without necessarily jettisoning, you know, their previous social democratic commitments. So the neocons tended to be in favor of uh, a much stronger welfare state, for example, than the older kind of conservative had been. The neoconservatives have always kind of hated Barry Goldwater. He's always been ant antithetical to them. So the neocons move into the, you know, sort of Republican Party and the conservative movement in the 70s and then into the 80s. Ronald Reagan, unfortunately, does some of the same things that Donald Trump does in terms of not being aware of exactly who he's hiring or who his underlings are hiring to work in his administration. So even though Ronald Reagan was not a neocon himself, he winds up having an administration which includes a significant portion of its staff who are neocons. And of course, uh, George H.W. Bush, who was Reagan's vice president, he had a certain affinity for the neocons. Bush had previously been director of the CIA, and, you know, he had that whole deep state intelligence background. And, uh, you know, later on, the neocons, you know, kind of used the prestige that they gain from the positions many of them held in the Reagan administration to, uh, you know, rise even higher when, the, uh, when George H.W. Bush takes office in 1989. And uh, they basically take over the conservative movement for 20 years, basically from, you know, the George H.W. Bush era until, uh, you know, uh, the Mitt Romney era, basically. Uh, and then Donald Trump comes along and kind of upsets the uh, apple cart there. And even though, you know, he's not really aware of who the neocons are and is not trying to purge them in a very explicit way, nevertheless, uh, Trump's instincts are all much closer to those of Pat Buchanan and the paleoconservatives than they are to the neocons. The neocons, in addition to being, you know, rather pro-welfare state, they are usually soft on immigration, not always, but usually. And in foreign policy, the neocons have a very hawkish disposition. They are fans of exporting democracy, basically, and nation building all around the world. And one of the key flashpoints between paleoconservatives and neocons in the 1990s was foreign policy. So paleoconservatives like Pat Buchanan were opposed to the first Gulf War. They were opposed to the idea that we'd get involved in the Middle East, whereas neocons were very strongly in favor of military intervention in the first Gulf War in 91. And then, of course, you know George W. Bush in uh, 2003 gets us involved you know, in uh, regime change in Iraq itself, and before that uh, in Afghanistan as well. So those are some of the key differences between the paleocons and the neocons. You have you know, sort of other branches of conservatism as well. You've got some new things developing with people who label themselves as national conservatives or as the new right. Uh, and then you have, of course, uh, many libertarians who are you know, either, who may self-identify also as conservatives, or who may, uh, you know, think of themselves as separate from conservatives, but still allied with them on a number of issues, particularly when it comes to opposing the left and opposing what, um, you know, one paleoconservative theorist had called anarcho-tyranny. Anarcho-tyranny is when you have 
anarchy in the worst sense in the streets with criminals, you know, uh, you know, beating people up and, you know, burning down, uh, you know, car lots and whatnot. But then you also have tyranny in the sense you have an overgrown federal government that is, you know, taxing people very highly and that is creating new regulations that are stifling business. And you kind of get the worst of both worlds instead of having a big government that is, you know, crushing uh, crime in the streets. You actually have big government in some ways teaming up with the criminals in order to uh, screw over ordinary Americans. And then not to mention the sort of de facto government corporations that are, for all intents and purposes, arms of the state at this point. That's right. And what you find, what winds up happening is the federal government is at least notionally restricted by the Constitution and by Mm -hmm. the Bill of Rights. So the federal government can't throw you in jail, uh, at least not easily, for the things that you say in your podcast, for example. But um, the flip side of this is that you have YouTube and you have you know, Facebook and all the other tech companies, and they can do whatever the hell they want. They're not bound, of course, by the First Amendment or by the Constitution. And so if they want to shut you up and just take, you know, take your account away, or for that matter, if they want to freeze your bank account, uh, there are all sorts of things that these corporations can do, and they are aggressively doing them. And so when you have the corporations using their private powers, teaming up with the government with its public powers, you wind up with you know, a completely totalistic approach to controlling uh, discourse. And that's kind of where we're getting to right now in this country. And I think a lot of Americans are so sick of it that they are you know, happy to vote for Donald Trump and happy to start entertaining the idea that maybe conservatism has something smart to say to them because they know that that may be the only lifeline that freedom has when you have you know, this anarcho-tyranny plus corporate tyranny uh, that we basically have in 2022. I was having a dinner with a friend last night, and so he said that, you know, if Buchanan had been elected in, what was it, 92, he would have been way more dangerous than Trump. And kind of where I fall on it is that there's no way Buchanan could have been elected in 92 because the country wasn't ready for Buchanan or Trump in 92. Do you think that there is sort of an inevitability of this sort of trajectory of history that is making it so that populist movements are... Like it's just the time for the populists to be on the ascendant and the institutionalists to going into the backseat at this point? Yeah, you know, I actually am not so sure of uh, the original premise there. So it seems to me that just as the um, Berlin Wall collapsed in 1989, it was torn down by the Germans, of course. And just as uh, the Russians overthrew the Soviet Union uh, in 1991, that you also had a kind of end of the Cold War era with an uprising here in the United States in 1992. So it's in pretty much the same sort of time frame as you see happening uh, mm-hmm. in the East. It's happening in the West as well. And uh, in the United States in particular, this takes the form of Pat Buchanan's challenge to George H.W. Bush in the 1992 primaries. It also takes the form of Ross Perot running for president you know, as a billionaire. I mean, in, in many ways, he kind of really is a prefiguration of Donald Trump. And Perot, I think there is, um, or at least imaginable scenarios in which Perot could have been elected in 1992. Sure. Uh, you know, there are you know, a number of ways in which things could have worked out that um, it's just about possible that uh, Perot could have been elected instead of Bill Clinton. Uh, I was Perot, in fourth grade, but I voted for Perot in our school elections. Ah, so, I mean, he <laughs> had the nine-year-old vote. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Perot wound up being uh, a little too flaky. And uh, he basically, he actually withdrew from the race at one point, and then he got back into it, you know, a month or so later. But as result of doing that, he kind of lost all of his momentum and, uh, you know, uh, that kind of destroyed whatever chance he had of becoming president. 
But if things had worked out just a little bit differently, and if he had been a little bit more uh, stable in his own, uh, you know, sort of mentality and a little bit more disciplined in his approach to politics. The other thing, too, is that uh, Perot really hated Pat Buchanan. And this comes through, especially in the late 1990s, when Pat Buchanan's looking to run a third party campaign for president, which he does run, of course, in 2000. And uh, Buchanan is looking to run on the ticket of the third party that Ross Perot has created, the Reform mm-hmm. Party. And Perot does everything within his power to prevent Pat Buchanan from getting the Reform Party nomination. It's like a civil war within the Reform Party. If how and, and, and this feud goes back all the way to 1992. Perot, for whatever reason, really hated Buchanan. But if instead Perot had been willing to team up with Pat Buchanan, for example, if Perot had put Buchanan on his ticket in 92, maybe as his vice presidential nominee, that could have been uh, you know, a kind of populist revolution right then and there. And if you think about also what happens in 1994, right, which is the first time that the Republicans take control of the House of Representatives in 40 years, 1994 really is a kind of revolution in, in Congress uh, with Republicans. They also win control of the Senate, which they've had, you know, you know, uh, about 10 years previously. But 94 really is uh, another one of these kind of revolutionary upheavals in American politics. And it seems to me that that, too, is tied in with the whole post-Cold War spirit. So there really was an opportunity back in you know, 92 and you know, around then for populism to have had, you know, its great dawn, uh, you know, two decades before. Uh, we actually get it with Donald Trump. And in terms of its inevitability, I think it is uh, somewhat inevitable because populism is kind of the shadow or the response to the failures of neoliberalism, the failures of globalization, the failures of elite administrative rules, uh, the failure of uh, neoconservatism with its you know, sort of messianic, omni-interventionist foreign policy. All of these things are policies that fail. And when they fail, they create a backlash, which necessarily, or is, you know, uh, if not necessarily, is strongly inclined to take a populist uh, form. And yeah, I think you also see, you know, the return of someone like Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, in that light as well, that he is kind of a reflection of the failures of neoliberalism. But I think, you know, we've seen that the right and the populist side of things is actually much stronger than the socialist side of things that you might associate with Bernie Sanders, that someone like Donald Trump actually succeeds in getting the Republican nomination and becoming president, whereas Bernie Sanders, you know, keeps falling short even getting the Democratic nomination. Do you agree with Curtis Yarvin that the sort of natural fruit of populism is monarchy, or is that wishful thinking on his part? Uh, you know, that's a complicated question. Um, I don't think it's the natural or necessary fruit, but the way things are right now, where Congress is such a weak institution and does such a very poor job of representing, uh, you know, its own districts, and um, Congress has been, you know, sort of frozen at its current number of members for, you know, decades now, well over half a century. Yeah. And all of that tends to erode the representative qualities of the Congress. And uh, at the same time, you've had, um, you know, and even going back a little bit earlier, the rise of a totally unaccountable bureaucracy within the executive branch. Mm. Uh, this, you know, you can call it the deep state, the administrative state, but all of these alphabet agencies in foreign policy, but also in domestic policy. And Congress seems to be completely incompetent at reining in these administrative organs because Congress, you know, I mean, it's always having its own partisan petty disputes. Uh, It's very difficult for Congress to wield power effectively. And the president can actually wield power rather more effectively because his power is all concentrated, theoretically at least, in his own hands. It's, you know, a one-man form of rule. And so if the president wants to go to war with the federal bureaucracy, even though they're both parts of the executive branch, the president can actually maybe move the needle a little bit, whereas Congress, I think, has a much harder time doing that. And that tends to make the president 
you know, kind of the, the tribune of the people as far as populist voters are concerned. They see the president as being the one great hope to deprive the administrative elite of their power. And they think that, um, you know, Congress is, is pretty much, uh, you know, a, a sort of dead end. So in that sense, there is this tendency towards uh, a kind of monarchy or concentration of power in, in the hands of one person. And that's, you know, that's a two-sided thing, unfortunately, because it also is, you know, I mean, that's how a Caesar comes to power. And I know that Yarvin, you know, thinks about the Roman emperors and, you know, some of the precedents there. And, uh, you know, I do not want to see a Caesar come to power. But on the other hand, I also think the oligarchic elite that we have both in government and in the private sphere is a terribly corrupt and dangerous thing. So it seems to me we need a balance between the few and the one uh, that we currently don't have. And that if we can get to that, then we can again enjoy Republican government, which is you know dependent upon that kind of balance between these these different forces. And it's not just a matter of you know uh, people power by itself. Do you think that Donald Trump wanted to do what you've just described and just failed at it? Or did he not have that in mind at all? If it's the former, why do you think he failed at it? I think he instinctively had a tendency in that direction. Um, with Donald Trump, you have some very healthy instincts combined with a very powerful personality. And you know, a lot of people dislike him just because of his personality. It seems to me his personality actually has a very useful uh, purpose as far as his instincts go, because his personality means that he is not Unlike most other rich people, he's not dependent upon his peers. He does not mm -hmm. seek approval from uh, people at his same level. In fact, he really dislikes a lot of the people who are at his, his own level. And uh, that, I think, you know, some of the, the personality qualities that people find disagreeable about him have actually helped to preserve his independence. The trouble is that he's not really a systematic kind of uh, leader, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to politics. Maybe he's very systematic when it comes to his business ventures. And some of them have actually been quite successful. I know that um, a friend of mine is a member of one of his golf courses, for example, and says that uh, when Trump took over the golf course, it actually became much better managed. And I stayed at the Trump Hotel uh, once or twice uh, here in D.C., and it's actually very well run. And it's very, uh, you know, it's one of the, the most welcoming hotels uh, I've ever stayed in. So Trump may be a very good manager when it comes to business ventures. But with politics, I think he just came into it with no knowledge as to, you know, what a neocon was or which conservatives or libertarians might be friendly to him and which ones might not. I don't think he understood how uh, treacherous the Republican Party establishment could be. And when Trump kept trying to be nice to them, basically, and say that he was going to include uh, establishment figures in his administration, and he was going to let Paul Ryan in Congress kind of lead his um, uh, legislative agenda, uh, the Republican establishment basically just kind of took that as a license or as a blank check to keep doing the things they've been doing you know, long before Donald Trump. And so as a result, the one really good year, 2017, when Trump was president and he had a Republican Congress and he could have done quite a lot, was completely wasted because he put too much initiative into the Republican Congress rather than taking it himself. And uh, it's one thing that makes me kind of hopeful for, you know, if you get another Trump term, if Trump runs again in 24 and wins, I think this time he's going to be much better educated as to how government actually operates, as to which people in government and which people in the conservative movement he can trust and which he can't. And that may make him a much more effective president in uh, 2024 than he had been during his first term. Yeah, when he made Reince Priebus his chief of staff on day one, I, that <laughs> that was about when I knew that, oh, yeah, this probably isn't going to end how I would like for it to end. On the other hand, I think you're right. I mean, he made some staffing mistakes, and I think he might have learned from those. And if he does run for and get a second term, he'll have far less to lose. Although I do kind of hope that he doesn't run 
like his I feel like his star is kind of fading a little bit and he's becoming more of a caricature than a than a force for anything that I would want. But in any case, what do you think the misconceptions around Pat Buchanan are? I'm a big fan of his. Like I said earlier, I was very young when he was sort of, you know, on the political stage, but I've heard him on the Tom Woods show. I've, you know, read some of the stuff that he's written. I don't think he's racist. And, you know, I mean, if he was racist, that doesn't mean that everything he stands for is bad. But yeah, what are people's misconceptions of him? Well, those are certainly two major misconceptions. The first being that he's racist and uh, Mm -hmm. related to that, the other misconception is that he's anti-Semitic. And uh, beyond those two points, there's also a misconception that he is a sort of angry person. And uh, and maybe a fourth misconception is the idea that um, he um, sort of lives and breathes politics and, you know, would like to be, you know, kind of out there, you know, with his pitchfork, uh, you know, fighting away. So I'll I'll kind of correct all four of those things. Uh, First of all, you know, Pat Buchanan comes from, uh, you know, he grew up in Washington, D.C., but not in, you know, kind of elite political circles. Uh, He's a, you know, sort of blue collar Irish Catholic kid for the most part. And um, so, you know, he has this kind of white ethnic view of the world. And that means on the one hand that he's not politically correct. It means that, you know, he certainly doesn't talk about race, for example, in the kind of terms that are uh, approved of by progressive elites. Mm -hmm. But it also means that he understands that, you know, the working class background is something that blacks, you know, many blacks also possess. And so there is a sort of uh, sympathy and a direct relationship, uh, you know, where different uh, ethnic groups that are working class uh, are able to, you know, they have certain rivalries with one another, but they also have a certain sense of common feeling. And so Buchanan has that. And I think he, he thinks very strongly that, you know, working class black Americans have been screwed over by, you know, uh, by the immigration system, for example, which has imported a lot of people who are competing directly with black Americans for a number of jobs. Um, and I think that he looks at the way in which, you know, black America has suffered as a result of, you know, policies that liberals intended to be beneficial, things like, uh, you know, uh, welfare policies and soft on crime policies, which actually are very detrimental to the black family and are very detrimental uh, to black lives in terms of increased crime rates. Then there is the uh, the anti-Semitism charge, which is also nonsense. And, you know, many of you know, Pat's uh, friends include a great many Jews all of whom have said, you know, that they've never had an issue with Pat Buchanan. Uh, But Pat is very outspoken, especially when it comes to his criticisms of Israel after the Cold War and his belief that Israel um, and the people who see themselves as being advocates for Israel's interests have been, uh, you know, recommending policies in in our U.S. foreign policy that Buchanan thinks are detrimental. So that came through with the first Persian Gulf War. And because Pat Buchanan has this background as a, uh, a newspaper editorialist in the 1960s, and as a Richard Nixon uh, speechwriter, Buchanan has a very blunt way of expressing things and a very powerfully polemical way of expressing things. And so as a result, you know, he will say things uh, that are not very diplomatic and, uh, and they're things that get picked up and they're very, you know, uh, they energize a lot of people, but they also turn off a lot of people. So that's where, you know, referring to something like the U.S. Congress as having an amen corner for Israel and things like that, those get, you know, picked up by people who say, oh, this sounds like he's going after them because, you know, they're supporting the Jewish state and maybe, you know, there's an anti-Jewish concern here. Whereas, in fact, I mean, Buchanan really has this very strong America first tendency. But, you know, someone like Paul Gottfried, for example, has been a friend of Pat's since, you know, the 1980s, if not earlier, and uh, and Murray Rothbard, too. And uh, these were some of the key thinkers who influenced Buchanan in his uh, runs for president in 92 and 96. And then beyond that, 
Pat is not an angry guy at all. He's actually a very, very pleasant, you know, person. So there's a, sometimes a radical difference between someone's stage persona and their actual, you know, sort of personality as a human being. In Pat's case, he is just one of the warmest and, you know, uh, sort of most polite and, uh, you know, really easygoing people that you can meet personally, as opposed to being the hard-charging political candidate that people think of him as being based on, uh, you know, his stage presence. And then finally, the last thing I would say about misconceptions of Buchanan is people think that he is, um, you know, someone who's really eager to get into the political fight and, to, you know, that he's someone who maybe really wished he had become president. Whereas, in fact, Buchanan's always been a little bit reluctant in some ways. He's always championed his ideas because he believes in them. He doesn't want any glory for himself. And in fact, you know, he's, he, he is a much more cerebral and reflective person as opposed to being an activist and a, a really, you know, sort of, a, you know, someone who wants to be in the, the rough and tumble of politics all the time. So he's a much more private person than many people realize. And uh, that certainly comes through now that he is, you know, sort of in semi-retirement. But even back in the day, he was not someone who relished you know, constantly, you know, uh, being in the midst of things, the way that someone like John McCain did. John McCain was a, a true political animal who loved being in the spotlight, talking to the press, you know, uh, on his uh, campaign bus and whatnot, whereas Buchanan was much more of a private person. My, fr- my friend who, uh, who called Buchanan more dangerous than Trump is definitely, he has referred to John McCain and Joe Biden, oddly, as his political heroes. Oh. He just loves sort of the, the interventionist I'm going to take care of all your problems types, I think. Which, you know, I mean, I make fun of him for it. And I say that to his face too. So I'm not, I'm not telling tales out of school. Where did the rivalry within the Reform Party come from? I, I, I live in Minnesota. So mm. I wasn't in Minnesota when Jesse Ventura was running for governor. And the kind of run up to that when he was actually a member of the Reform Party. And then the Minnesota Reform Party severed ties with it over that feud. I don't really know the history of it, though. Are you well versed in that? Could you, could you kind of Talk about where that rivalry well, comes from. Well, only moderately well-versed. So, uh, sorry, uh, Ross Perot runs for president in 1992 as an independent candidate. Perot is a billionaire. Mm-hmm. So he actually has the resources to create a third party. And he does that. He creates the Reform Party basically out of his campaign. And uh, so that the Reform Party is a vehicle that exists, you know, in 95 and 96, when there's an open question as to whether uh, Perot is going to run for president again. And ultimately, he does run for president again. And uh, he does well enough that second time in 1996 that uh, the Reform Party is still on the ballot in most states. And uh, there's still, you know, en- enough activist energy behind the Reform Party that some of the state uh, branches, like in, in, uh, in um, uh, Minnesota, for example, are actually quite successful. So Perot, starting out from just a pure independent candidacy, winds up being the creator of something that could be a third political party, mm-hmm. maybe a permanent force within American politics. And a more serious third political party than like the Libertarian Party, which even though it had existed long before then, really wasn't winning any elections. Whereas Perot, you could at least imagine that this was growing to be large enough that it could uh, start winning a lot of elections. And of course, it, you know, with Jesse the Body Ventura running in, in Minnesota, he does win uh, a gubernatorial election. So Perot winds up creating this institution, but Perot, um, like a lot of creators of institutions, has trouble letting go. So he's still very personally invested in this. Uh, So he drags his feet in 1995 about declaring or not declaring whether he's going to run in 96. So all of his activists are kept, um, you know, in the dark. They don't know whether Perot's going to run, but they need to find another candidate. Other candidates who might like to get into the Reform Party and run for its nation, uh, they decide not to because they think that the founder might run. And if he runs, he'll obviously get the nomination. So that's a problem as early as 95 and 96. 
And then going forward from there, even though it's pretty clear that Perot's not going to run a third time in 2000, Perot still wants to have a lot of sway over the party. And it seems as if Perot has a very strong objection to Pat Buchanan's social conservatism. Uh, Perot was mm-hmm. pro-choice. Uh, Pat Buchanan was pro-life. So they disagreed on abortion. They may have disagreed on, on you know, issues like uh, gay marriage and other things as well. So Perot is, is, is hostile to Buchanan. He doesn't want Buchanan's people to get into the Reform Party and take it over. And then also Perot is just kind of jealous of anyone who gets into the Reform Party and threatens to become as big as Perot is within it. And that includes uh, Jesse Ventura. So when Jesse Ventura, you know, gets into the party, runs on its ticket, wins the uh, governorship in uh, Minnesota, Perot then becomes jealous. And, you know, now he uh, you know, is unhappy that Jesse Ventura has won. And within the, the Reform Party itself, there are a lot of factions around these personalities. And as is the case with most third parties, you get, you know, various eccentrics who are drawn into the party and who are just unrealistic about how political coalitions work. So you always have the conditions that could lead to splintering and, and civil strife within uh, you know, a third political party. And the outsized personalities involved here, uh, you know, Buchanan, but also especially Ventura and Perot, um, that was, you know, those were conditions that would create a lot of fragmentation. That's really sad because it leads to ultimately Buchanan does run in 2000. He does win the Republican, the, sorry, the Reform Party nomination. But uh, Perot works so hard to sabotage Buchanan that that's basically the end of the Reform Party after that. Mm-hmm. Switching gears a little bit. So the religious right, especially in the 80s and 90s, gets a lot of flack. So I'm I'm gay. So, you know, I mean, everyone and everyone I've ever known and been friends with, at least in my adult life, has just hated the religious right. And they think that the religious right is everything wrong with the world. The Republicans are all religious. They hate God, all of this stuff. And I was talking to Jack Mason from the Perfume Nationalist podcast, and I brought that up. And his response was that, and he's also gay, and he's also on the right, just like me. So like we were kind of bonding over that. His response was, though, that the religious right really never had any institutional power at all. And that even though they were on TV a lot, it was really people like Tipper Gore and these sort of proto-Karens, I guess, who were actually enacting all of these you know, the censorship, the movie ratings and video game ratings and sort of the busybodiness. Is that accurate or did the religious right actually have some power? And I guess you didn't really mention them earlier when I was asking you about the schools of American conservatism. So are they a different school? Are they kind of intertwined with another one or are they just really not an issue? Yeah, it's a good question and there are lots of layers to it. So mm-hmm. as you see right now with uh, some of the things that are happening in Florida, in uh, the way in which the Virginia gubernatorial election was affected by, uh, you know, critical race theory in the schools and things like that. Um, One of the things that has always galvanized the populist right, including the religious right, has been local issues, Mm -hmm. uh, in particular what's going on in the schools. So a lot of the religious right was a response to the drift of public schools, even back in the 1970s, in a more progressive direction. And so when you had people like Phyllis Schlafly be concerned about uh, what her children or grandchildren were being taught in schools, that generated you know, a very uh, significant populist backlash, uh, particularly in the form of Christian conservatism. And you'd had Supreme Court cases, for example, that had uh, taken prayer out of schools and done a number of other things, which were seen as being attacks upon religious liberty and attacks upon local you know, sort of self-government where you know, religious groups might have uh, you know, a lot of sway in one place and a lot less sway in another place. That, uh, you know, you, the, so the Christian coalition, uh, you know, and Christian conservatism in general, it tended to have um, more power in local politics than it wielded in national politics. 
And it's and people tend to forget now, but in the Republican Party, is as late as 1996, there was still a battle at every Republican convention every four years over the abortion plank, over whether uh, the Republican Party would be officially for overturning Roe v. Wade or whether it would kind of accept Roe v. Wade and just kind of move on. And uh, 96, you know, was kind of the final time and the decisive point at which uh, the Republican Party decided it would continue to be opposed to Roe v. Wade. But before that, it had, it had always been a kind of almost 50-50 battle, at least at the elite level. The, you know, sort of religious voters of the Republican Party, you know, they were strongly, uh, you know, anti-abortion. But uh, the elite of the party um, was much more divided. And in fact, maybe you could even say the elite was relatively in favor of abortion rights. I mean, um, Ronald Reagan, for example, had actually passed, uh, signed into law one of the most liberal abortion laws in the country when he was governor of California. And uh, there are various other, you know, sort of um, people like Sandra Day O'Connor, for example, the first woman on the Supreme Court who's appointed by Reagan. She, uh, you know, is a supporter of Roe and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So things were much more complicated. The religious right was a strong force at the grassroots level, at the local level, uh, but tended not to have uh, a lot of uh, sway within uh, national government. It was something that um, Republicans would always pay lip service to, but in terms of what it actually meant in, in, in policy was often uh, more of a question. And, you know, there have always been uh, gay conservatives, gay libertarians, and others who have played key roles within the right. So I think it was maybe 90, 90 sorry, 2000, where the person uh, nominating Pat Buchanan. So, you know, at a, at a political convention, you have someone formally give the nominating speech to nominate the person who's going to be the candidate. In 2000, the person giving the nominating speech for Pat Buchanan at the Reform Party convention was Justin Raimondo, who was a gay libertarian who is the editor of antiwar.com, the founder of antiwar.com. One of my heroes. And, uh, you know, you'd had numerous others who, um, you know, had been involved both on, you know, even going back to the early days of things like National Review in the 1950s, um, you know, straight through to uh, the 2000s and beyond. So the right was never, you know, conducting witch hunts, you know, for, you know, to trying to throw out gay conservatives or things like that. But it was certainly opposed to the kinds of issues that have come up right now in Florida and elsewhere in terms of what's in the curriculum, uh, what's being taught to kindergartners and things like that. So this is going to be, the Florida issue is probably going to be a non-issue by the time people are listening. So we're talking about the so-called don't say gay bill, which here at the beginning of March was just, a, for some reason, it was such a huge issue. And do you have any insight as to why that was blown so out of proportion? And like, I think the human rights campaign has withdrawn their donation to Disney or they're not allowing, they're not accepting Disney's donation unless Disney does more to overturn this bill that all it really does is, is say that preschool up through like third grade teachers aren't allowed to talk to kids about sexuality yeah. in class. Like it's not right. even, it's not even That's like right. if a kid comes up to the teacher and says, I think, I think I might be trans. The teacher can't like provide some sort of counseling. It's just that like, they're not allowed to teach sex ed basically yeah. to these tiny kids. Right. No, it's, uh, but you know, these issues, even if they are, you know, restricted to someplace like Florida, you know, in this case where the law is, uh, you know, where, where this law applies, even if it seems like uh, it is a kind of skirmish in the culture war, they wind up being very symbolically important. And they wind up being things where, you know, if you're the human rights campaign, I'm sure they can generate a lot of fundraising revenue by going out there and saying, oh, this is terrible. This is, you know, a war on trans kids. This is a war on gay kids or whatever. So you see a lot of uh, political institutions and, you know, that have fundraising opportunities here. And it's, it's in their interest uh, materially to try to make these things as explosive as possible. And uh, it's also a chance to kind of show how much power you can wield 
over others. And that's what we're seeing, I think, with mm, Disney. Yeah. So Disney has been a, you know, a fairly woke corporation for over 20 years now. I mean, going back to the 1990s. And, uh, you know, because back in the 90s, it was actually, you know, an ongoing controversy. It would pop up and no one really cared a lot about it. But back in the 90s, they would have, I guess, what were called Gay Day at, at Disneyland. It wasn't an official gay day from Disneyland. It was just, you know, a particular day that a lot of gay people would go to Disneyland. Mm. And uh, so um, you did have Christian conservatives who said, well, we should boycott Disney because of this. And despite having a little bit of boycott pressure from Christian conservatives, Disney never you know, said that they wanted to repudiate it. They never did anything. They were happy to welcome homosexuals to Disneyland all the time, but also, you know, during this, you know, sort of informal gay day. Uh, I don't know if it was a particular day of the year or what, but it was something that kept coming uh, up as an issue, you know, in the late 90s. So Disney has been, you know, quite tolerant and accommodating and, you know, even in some respects woke for a very long time. And uh, yet right now what you're seeing is that if Disney is not going to be hard enough in opposing, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis and opposing this Republican bill in Florida, that the human rights campaign and their kind of, you know, lavender mafia will come down on uh, Disney and will, you know, really inflict some pain, not so much, um, you know, at the, uh, the box office, right? But certainly at the level of sort of corporate relations, at the level of HR, there'll be a lot of Disney employees who, you know, may take their, you know, marching orders from human rights campaign or what have you, and it'll cause a lot of strife within the company. And since companies are always averse to having any kind of management strife within them, they tend to concede rather than going to bat to, you know, just sure. say, hey, people are allowed to have their own, you know, points of view on things. Politics is not our business. And the state of Florida is not a state that we control. And what happens in Florida politics is separate from what Disney does in terms of conducting its business. So there's kind of a growing movement in support of state secession and even just an all-out kind of abolition of the Constitution and national divorce. Where do you land on kind of those issues? You know, I'm pretty uh, skeptical of that. Um, I mean, I know that it's it's much discussed. I'm skeptical mm-hmm. that it's going to happen. And I'm even more skeptical that it would be a good idea. Okay. For a number of reasons, one of them being strategic. So right now, uh, you know, as we are recording this podcast, Russia has been invading Ukraine for about two weeks. And even though the Ukrainians might prevail, they're being very, you know, sort of uh, hardy in their resistance to the Russian invasion. You can see the um, danger that is presented to a relatively small state when it has, you know, um, a superpower next to it. It seems to me that the United States in being a federation uh, of uh, smaller units has been able to have in large part the best of both worlds. It has the power of being a very large state and you know the military power, the capacity to defend itself, capacity to project power around the world while still maintaining a high degree of freedom uh, at the local level. And unfortunately that's starting to you know, be reversed now. And that's one of the things that's driving us towards this national divorce or neo-secessionist movements. But I think the strategic argument for union which was very powerful back uh, you know, at the time of the Constitution's framing, uh, still applies today. And even though it seems like, well, you know, I mean, there, there are no, you know, there's no British Empire today. There are you know, no empires that are going to threaten the United States you know, if we did have a national divorce tomorrow. That's true, but you never know what's going to develop uh, in the long run over the course of you know, 100 years or so. And in that, time, in that time frame, I think you would see uh, the emergence of other you know, sort of large, powerful states that would then try to uh, manipulate our politics and, uh, you know, and potentially would pose a direct threat to us. So again, that's over the horizon, but that's the kind of long-term consideration I think you have to have in mind when you think about the optimal scale for a country and that, you know, having a large country is generally a good thing. 
but you want to have a large country while still having freedom. And that's the difficult balance to strike. I very much sympathize with the frustrations that people feel that drive them to support uh, the idea of a national divorce or, or a new secession. But I also think that there's a little bit of um, a category error that's being made here because people think, well, the reason why we are being uh, tyrannized is because we're in this union with a lot of voters who have you know, sort of different ideas than ourselves. But I think that's generally not the case. It seems to me that it is the elite, which is generally pretty homogenous across the states, that is actually the source of tyranny in our time. Mm -hmm. So even if you did secede, it seems to me that uh, you know, Minnesota or Texas or you know, Virginia, all of these states would have their own quite corrupt elites who would continue to do many of the same bad things, if not all of the same bad things, that the federal government is doing and that you know, our national elites are doing. The other thing, too, is that even if you had a political divorce and you had you know, complete self-government at the state level, including in national defense, which would now be defense of Minnesota or defense of Texas or Virginia or whatever, um, even if you had all of that, you would still have um, such deep economic and cultural connections between the states that many of the culture war issues, many of the you know, economic complaints that people have about the tech companies, those would still be every bit as much in effect as they are when we actually have a political union. So it seems to me that a national divorce and secession are not actually solutions to the problems that are giving rise to those sentiments. Um, but I certainly do sympathize with you know, the frustration that people feel. And uh, if, you know, but my solution is really the opposite. That in fact, we need people to be more engaged defensively in national politics. And maybe we do need to have you know, um, uh, you know, a, a, a Trump-like figure or a figure who has some of the instincts that Trump has but uh, executes them with a more systematic plan. Uh, if you're going to have a, you know, uh, if we're going to throw out the power of the administrative state, if we're going to curtail some of the power of the tech companies and then reestablish freedom and allow local governments to have, uh, and, you know, and local, local people, local majorities to have, you know, a greater um, say in the destiny of their own lives. Do you think that there's a conflict between the sort of states' rights and that sort of instinct toward localism and so then on one hand and then the wrap yourself in the flag type nationalism that many conservatives tend to display at the same time? Yeah, but you know, I think there's less of a conflict where you might imagine, you know, kind of yeah. at the grassroots than there is uh, among some of the elite layers. So I think a lot of, you know, uh, sort of flag-waving patriots who are not, you know, sort of uh, wanting to go abroad in search of monsters to destroy and trying to, you know, overthrow every government and make it into a little model of, you know, America. Um, I think just ordinary patriots, people who have, you know, flags outside of their houses and whatnot, uh -huh. I think they're able to balance their, you know, love of America as a whole with their love of their local community. And if anything, I think they're, the balance tends to be in favor of the local community rather than in favor of, you know, sort of great national institutions. If you look at, you know, the approval ratings of the national government, you know, Congress, president, the Supreme Court, even the military, you see that people tend to have, you know, uh, less approval of those national institutions than they have of institutions that are closer to themselves in their states and mm -hmm. in, in their localities. That said, I think you do see at the kind of higher ideological level that you have um, th those people who say that America is an idea and that this idea is a universal idea and therefore has to be exported to the whole world. Um, a lot of neocons, a lot of George W. Bush-style Republicans, they wrap themselves in the flag too, but they do it in a different way. And they do it in a way that is much more imperialistic and really is not compatible with the degree of uh, localism, both within our country and also 
beyond our borders, where we let other countries do things their way and we don't insist that they have to do them our way. That kind of uh, American imperialism and wrapping yourself in the flag for the sake of a universal agenda, that I think is antithetical to local self-rule. You have described libertarianism and Stalinism as churches during this conversation. (laughs) I do not disagree with you. This coming from a libertarian, the last couple of years I have really come to grips with the fact that I may be a member of a secular religion. Hmm. Where do you think libertarianism goes wrong and what can fix it? Yeah, I mean, libertarianism, uh, as it's formulated by someone like Murray Rothbard, tends to be, I think, correctly aware that it is a political program, a political philosophy, as opposed to an overall philosophy of life and culture. Mm-hmm. And it may be compatible with the different, um, you know, a plurality of uh, life philosophies or cultural philosophies. But I think someone like Murray Rothbard is right to be careful to uh, separate libertarianism from all of the cultural tides and tendencies that one might find on the left or the right. And ultimately, if you are a Republican, you probably have to decide, uh, sorry, if you are a, uh, a libertarian, I certainly don't want to say Republican, <laughs> terrible, terrible thing. Uh, no, libertarian is very, very different. If you are a libertarian, and I do mean small l libertarian, you know, you can affirm libertarianism as a, you know, sort of set of political beliefs, um, but then you may be faced with a choice whether you want to go, go right or go left mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, go in some other direction on the basis of culture and, um, uh, you know, a philosophy of life as opposed to, you know, a a political philosophy. Um, But a lot of libertarians don't want to make that kind of conscious uh, choice. And instead, they tend to import the cultural assumptions of either the left or the right into libertarianism. And I think that causes uh, a lot of confusion within libertarianism. And you see that especially at the elite level, um, where a lot of left-wing assumptions uh, get imported into libertarianism by what you know some folks have called beltway conservatives, uh, you know, um, many, many sorry beltway libertarians who are based you know in the D.C. area, and um, you know they they oftentimes will culturally be drawn to the left, um, which is okay if they are explicit about that and if they know what they're doing. But if they're saying all libertarians must have their cultural views, uh, that I think is a problem. And on the right, you know, you will find uh, you know. Uh, you know, some of the paleo-libertarians, as they're called, some of Murray Rothbard's friends, will say, well, in fact, libertarians should be culturally right-wing. But I think most of the time, they are pretty clear uh, when they say that, that they mean, you know, the sort of libertarianism and the cultural agenda to be two separate things that, you know, go well together, as opposed to being all, you know, a, a complete whole that has to be accepted completely. You do find some folks on the, you know, sort of libertarian right who would take a more holistic view and say that libertarians do have to be politically culturally right-wing, I should say. But I don't think that's necessarily correct. I think that, you know, someone like Rothbard is is more correct that uh, libertarianism is best when it is a relatively limited um, approach to politics. The other uh, trouble with libertarianism is that it tends to be based on abstract rules as opposed to the way people actually live their lives and the way in which politics actually operates and even the way in which economics operates. So sometimes libertarianism becomes just a matter of saying that here are the rules of economics, and we think that they will just naturally, uh, you know, people will follow those rules if we get rid of, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the government interference, or if we, you know, kind of set up uh, the right kind of institutional framework. Whereas, in fact, people are always breaking rules, uh, including people who want to, you know, do things irrationally, do things because, you know, they're passionate about them as opposed to because they think they are the most, uh, you know, effective way of doing them. I think you have to take account in politics and in society of the irrational component of human beings. 
And libertarianism often struggles a little bit because while libertarianism, you know, realizes that people have uh, subjective schedules of values, uh, libertarianism also wants to say, well, once you have that subjective schedule of values, there is one precise way, one exact way, one right way and correct way, one efficient way of actually bringing about prosperity or bringing about you know, any number of other objectives that people want to achieve, and that's to do it by using the rules of the free market. Whereas, in fact, um, you know, people are very subjective even when it comes to their approach to uh, instrumental rules, not just when it comes to their approach to, uh, you know, kind of their overarching uh, objectives in life. So if libertarianism can become a little more um, uh, aware of human nature and a little bit more humanistic in that sense, uh, as opposed to rationalistic, I think it would be much stronger and it would be able to, you know, sort of... Um, engage more effectively in, uh, you know, sort of the wider culture and uh, wider politics. So I have two criticisms right now, at least, of libertarianism. On one hand, you know, Robbie Suave from Reason, God bless him, wrote an article recently calling on Mitt Romney, of all people, to run for president. Um, <laughs> like, That's horrible. I, I just, it's probably just because he's lived in D.C. for so long that he he doesn't understand how tone deaf that sounds. So that's <laughs> like one portion of libertarianism. The other portion is the Mises Caucus, which I would consider myself a member of. And, you know, I love going to Mises events and I love going to LP conventions if for no other reason than that I love a good brawl. But the guys like the Mises Caucus and Dave Smith are, they seem to be unaware of the reality of politics and the fact that it is about power. You describe libertarianism as a church, and it really is. We try to be evangelical rather than just coming to grips with the fact that, you know what, if you're going to win elections and actually impose your views on people, you're going to have to violate the nap, kind of. So I think that that's one thing that we have to learn. Either just dissolve the LPL together and rejoin the, the right, because it seems like the right is kind of on the right track here, or just... <laughs> Or just keep being evangelicals and and not doing anything and possibly even spoiling elections in the wrong direction. Does that sound right to you too? Yeah, you know, um, I haven't read Robbie's article. Uh, he's a friend, and you know, I think he's a very smart guy. Sure. Um, but you know, maybe his political judgments are uh, not all that sound. <laughs> I remember, you know, a few years ago, uh, libertarians in the D.C. area got very excited uh, around 2012, maybe when it looked like John Huntsman was going to run for president. Oh, and I think, yeah. you know, Huntsman might have been a very good president. Unfortunately, he ran such a terrible campaign that, you know, never went anywhere whatsoever. Um, but yes, there is this uh, tendency for libertarians, when they look at, you know, Republican politics, for example, to want to project onto someone like Mitt Romney something that they want to see that, in fact, uh, is not there and, and may, you know, really be the opposite of what uh, libertarians would want if he actually got power. I think Romney is one of the, you know, most dangerous, you know, and, and bad people uh, in American politics. And as far as, um, you know, the, uh, the practical considerations of politics go in the, in the Libertarian Party, you know, one of the other religious elements of libertarianism is that it tends to be focused on purity. And that's why you get these, you know, sort of bitter battles between different libertarian factions and saying who is, you know, uh, deviating to the left or to the right, or, who, you know, who is failing to, uh, you know, uh, observe the, the nap in exactly the right way. Yeah. And all of that, you know, um, it seems to me you might as well take that energy and invest it in a real religion if you're going to do that. Right. Yeah. Basically, doing theology at that point, and, and a lot of people, yourself a saint, and, and a lot of people are. I think is something that you know, relatively few people uh, actually attain, and uh, you know, most of us are sinners, and uh, we just have to find out how to you know be sinners in a less uh, destructive way. 
as opposed to saying, well, here's this code that's going to be perfect if we just adhere to it, you know, to the letter. But in fact, we know that we're not going to adhere to it to the letter. So we just have to be more realistic about our human nature. I think James Madison is a very good, um, you know, a very good reading for libertarians on this and going back to the Federalist Papers and just looking at the things he acknowledges about what human nature is going to translate to and into, into politics. It really is going to be a matter of having contesting forces against one another and that that's going to preserve liberty as opposed to having someone who has the perfect, uh, you know, sort of architectural design for liberty and that they're going to just, you know, be able to impose that on everyone. And everyone's going to go along with it because everyone really loves liberty. That's all false to human nature. And in fact, the people who have these great architectural designs, they're usually very bad people who want to run other people's lives. And other people, you know, they um, they don't want to just follow a set of rules. They want to be, you know, the kind of messy human beings that they actually are. And a politics that doesn't accommodate that is going to be either totally irrelevant, uh, which is usually the case with the LP, or it's going to be, you know, something that's totalistic. And, you know, it's going to be like the Bolshevik party or, you know, uh, or some Iranian theocratic party or something. And uh, that's, you know, even worse. <laughs> You mentioned Hamilton, or I'm sorry, Madison and the Federalist Papers. If you were to port yourself onto the founding generation, do you think you would have been a Federalist or an Anti-Federalist or somewhere in between? Yeah, I would have been a Federalist, uh, okay. both when it comes to the ratification of the Constitution, partly for the reasons I mentioned earlier about, yeah. I think, the, uh, the value of having a, uh, a large, uh, you know, um, federation uh, in order to defend itself and one that is, you know, sort of joined together quite strongly and not as loosely as in the Articles of Confederation. Um, and then also uh, going forward, I probably would have sympathized with the Federalists more than with uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, you know, in the first uh, 20 years or so of the American Republic. I do think, I mean, the Federalists, you know, they have their downsides just as the Jeffersonians have theirs. I think, you know, John Adams is a figure I like to revisit a lot because he's really a, a much more sophisticated and deeper thinker than people realize, including on, on libertarian issues. So I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, book by, it's a very tiny book. It's like a little 90-page booklet uh, by a guy named uh, Etienne de la Boetti, who is a um, basically a 16th century French philosopher. Uh, he dies very young. His book is called uh, The Discourse on Voluntary Servitude. And it is an examination of the fact that in any kind of government, uh, the ruled always outnumber the ruler. And so why is it that the ruled continue to obey what the ruler tells them? So it's a very libertarian and even in some ways proto-anarchist uh, pamphlet. And uh, it turns out that John Adams actually translated this pamphlet uh, into English, um, uh, I think around the 1810 or so. And, um, you know, Adams was very interested in these fundamental questions about political philosophy and government and liberty. And, um, and he had a complex, you know, response to them. He, he thought that human beings are so desirous of um, approval and of glory that, uh, that that gets you know reflected in politics in you know uh, the titles that we give to government officials and whatnot. And of course, as you may know, I mean Adams was kind of infamous uh, during the first Congress for wanting to have the president and vice president addressed by these you know sort of uh, flamboyant honorifics um, like your august majesty or whatever the phrase might have been. And, you know, everyone quite rightly, you know, said no to those proposals from Adams. But the reason Adams was doing that was because he said, um, basically, you know, whether or not you use these titles, this is how vice presidents and presidents will think of themselves. And if you use the term, then at least people will realize, aha, we're dealing with people who have a very inflated sense of themselves. Whereas if you don't use those terms, you have a kind of counterfeit, uh, you know, equality that is really disguising the nature of power. Okay, so you're a federalist. You like Hamilton, you are a unionist, so I presume you like Lincoln. 
What about Teddy Roosevelt? He's the other kind of big name who, you know, at least right libertarians tend to not like, and a lot of conservatives love. Where do you land on Teddy Roosevelt? And why do you think so many conservatives love him, even though he was sort of the proto-progressive? Yeah, I do not like uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And, uh, you know, if you actually look at... (laughs) One for three. Yeah, if you look look at the things that Roosevelt is saying, um, he is basically um, kind of (laughs) repudiating the older, you know, sort of federalist tradition. That's why his speech is called the new nationalism. I mean, he Mm -hmm. thinks that uh, there really is a need for uh, America to kind of move in a new sort of more centralized uh, direction. Um, And I I think that, you know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's whole... Uh, sort of personality is a lot of bluster and whatnot. And there's, you know, um, a, a lot of power worship attached to uh, Teddy sure. Roosevelt, both himself and also in the way that other people uh, deal with him. And uh, and Roosevelt was, you know, in favor of getting into World War I long before uh, Woodrow Wilson was. So even though, you know, most conservatives and, you know, a lot of normal people now would point to Woodrow Wilson and say, oh yeah, Woodrow Wilson was this, you know, kind of warmonger and he got us into World War I, it's totally unnecessary. Um, certainly, a lot of libertarians would say that, but uh, Theodore Roosevelt was even worse than Woodrow Wilson and wanted, you know, even more eagerly uh, to get involved. And admittedly, you know, I mean, there are some historians who would argue with a bit of nuance and say, well, maybe an earlier intervention would have been a smaller intervention or whatnot. But I think Teddy Roosevelt just loved war, and uh, and he had this, you know, um, this bombastic side that I think is, uh, you know, is pretty detrimental. And I like the more sober and introspective kind of. Uh, conservative, uh, federalist or nationalist, uh, like the Adams family, like, you know, John Adams and John Quincy Adams, and like, uh, you know, even even Alexander Hamilton is uh, rather more restrained and rather more, you know, sort of uh, has a more complicated view of human nature mm-hmm. than someone like uh, Teddy Roosevelt. What I think I can say about Teddy Roosevelt is he is, um, he really is a very good writer. And it seems to me that, um, you know, uh, as a journalist, uh, you know, as a, uh, you know, an autobiographer, uh, there's a lot to be said in favor of TR as a writer. Uh, but I wish he wouldn't wouldn't have gotten into politics. And there were a lot of good writers back then too. I think the early 20th century was sort of maybe the high point of American journalism, really, in a lot yeah. of ways. Do you have any like Angel Mencken? I assume you like. Are there names that people may or may not have heard of who you who you sort of try to emulate in your writing? Yeah, I don't know about uh, emulation, uh, but um, there are certainly various writers who have inspired me a lot. Yeah. Uh, Mencken is is certainly a good example. Uh, Mencken's close contemporary, whom I mentioned a little while back, uh, Albert J. Nock, would be another one. More uh, recent writers, such as uh, Gore Vidal, even though he's someone who's coming from the left, mm-hmm. um, he is, uh, especially his essays, but also his novels, uh, are just, you know, treasure troves of, of, of fantastic writing. And, uh, you know, some of the things he says in politics are sound, some of the things he says are unsound, but he's always, you know, well worth reading and a, a fascinating figure. Then when it comes to fiction, uh, you know, there's a novelist like Evelyn Waugh or um, someone else. uh, More recently, uh, you know, uh, uh, Michel Welbeck, the French novelist, is uh, also uh, a favorite of mine. And, um, you know, there are I've increasingly started turning towards uh, older sources uh, over the past couple of years here, perhaps in response to, uh, you know, COVID and everything else. I felt like going back to, you know, earlier phases of civilization so uh, I've spent a lot more time uh, recently rereading Thucydides, uh, revisiting Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe and other dramatists of uh, Elizabethan era, uh, as well as, you know, um, you know ancient uh, Roman sources going back to, uh, to Livy and to Virgil. So um, all those, you know, thinkers, especially as I, as I get older, I find that I am 
you know, sort of more and more. Uh, I was a classicist um, when I was, uh, uh, that was my major in, in college. Uh, and I find that I'm returning back to my interest in the ancient world uh, as I get older, just because it is something more permanent than uh, the controversies of the immediate uh, time. Uh, and also that um, it really illuminates current events in light of, uh, you know, um, archetypal events in history, which we can still uh, learn a great deal from. So those are some of the sources I look to for wisdom and that uh, inform my writing and thinking. That's great. You mentioned Welbeck. Um, I had never heard of him until just recently. Jack Mason, who I mentioned earlier, the Perfume Nationalist host, is actually going to be teaching a class on his work for RU here coming up in the next few months. So be on the lookout for that. You have the greatest Twitter handle of anyone I know, Tory Anarchist. <laughs> Tell me about that. How did you come up with it and what, what does it mean? Yeah, so um, it is a label uh, which has been applied to a number of writers and thinkers uh, over the course of a century or so. I think uh, the great satirist and caricaturist uh, Max Beerbohm was one of the early people um, who may have used the phrase himself and certainly was something that got applied to him. Uh, there is, um, so I mentioned Evelyn Waugh, the novelist, and sometimes even he is called a Tory anarchist. Um, certainly his view of, uh, uh, you know, politics had a certain Tory sensibility. You know, he liked to call himself, uh, you know, a monarchist and, uh, you know, a defender of the old Church of England and things like that, which are very Tory sentiments. But then he also really hated bureaucracy. He really hated uh, busybodiness. So there's a, you know, kind of mix of the Tory and the anarchist, even in a novelist like Evelyn Waugh. But his son, Auburn Waugh, was actually uh, someone who is often referred to as being something of a Tory anarchist in that uh, he too had a certain kind of right-wing sensibility and recognition of the value of tradition while also having a completely uh, you know, irreverent attitude towards uh, authority in general, but particularly uh, state authority. So Orban Wall was, uh, is actually someone I should mention as, as you know, an influence on my own writing and uh, certainly you know, 20 years ago, a very big influence uh, on my view of politics. So those are some of the Tory anarchists who have influenced me. Others include uh, uh, the writer Florence King. Uh, she wrote you know, a number of memoirs. Uh, she was a writer who often talked about uh, being a Southern woman and kind of the culture of the South. Uh, and uh, she was often known as kind of a misanthrope. She was very critical of uh, you know, the, uh, the human race and its follies. And she was a, a columnist for National Review for, for a good many years. Um, others like George Orwell have sometimes been called Tory anarchists also. Um, Orwell, I think, with you know maybe less reason than some of the others, sure. um, but there's there's some merit uh, even even in designating him that way. So um, what it basically comes down to, I think, is uh, a certain recognition for the value of tradition, for the the value of evolved institutions and evolved habits, while at the same time having a great deal of skepticism towards uh, concentrations of power and towards uh, the pomposity of authority. And, uh, you know, where, and so it's, it's, it's a way of distinguishing oneself both from libertarians who may tend to be, you know, uh, rather critical of authority, but at the same time also are often critical of tradition, and also uh, distinguishing oneself from the sort of pure or plain Tory who is, uh, you know, likes tradition, but also tends to be excessively deferential to authority. So I think the Tory anarchist is sort of the best of both worlds. Awesome. Well, as we wind down, why don't you go ahead and um, plug your links and uh, we'll, we'll close it out. Yeah. So uh, I am on Twitter at Tory Anarchist. Uh, Modern Age can be found at uh, modernagejournal.com and uh, on Twitter at, at Mod Age Journal. And, um, you know, if you just Google my name, plenty of stuff will come up. 
there is a politician in Arizona who shares my name. So sometimes there's confusion there. But in general, I think uh, my Google hits are higher up than his are. So there should be, uh, you know, you'll get my most recent articles at various places if you just Google. Uh, I also write uh, for uh, the Spectator World. It's uh, spectatorworld.com. And uh, I think even spectator.com will take you there. This is basically the American uh, edition of uh, the British Spectator uh, political magazine, which has been in print, uh, you know, really since the early 19th century, although in some ways it has antecedents going back to even the 18th century. So it's one of the longest uh, established and, and best uh, political magazines in the English-speaking world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm honored to be a regular columnist for its U.S. edition. I love The Spectator. I haven't read much from The Spectator, but my very favorite piece of political commentary ever written is a piece by Angelo Cotavia on mm. the American ruling class. It's only available at archive.org at this point. Like, Spectator's already taken it down. I don't know when it was written, but I read it at least a couple of times a year just to glean more insight from it. So maybe I'll link to that as well because it just came to mind. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Audience, this has been a treat for you as well, I know. And yeah, so thanks. Thanks for checking out this episode of Blackbird. If you like what you heard today, be sure you're subscribed on your podcatcher of choice. You can find me anywhere by searching Blackbird with James Gentleman. Follow me on Twitter at JamesLJ. My DMs are always open, so if you have feedback, ideas, or have something interesting to say and would like to appear on Blackbird, just drop me a line there. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all my interviews, plus plenty of bonus content, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, toss me $7 a month or $70 a year, and I'll get you all set up. You can also find me on Odyssey, where I'm posting the video of my interviews. Just search for Blackbird there or click the link in the show notes. And finally, if you haven't already, please leave me a rating and a review over at iTunes. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to Blackbird, and until next time, live free. (laughs) 